Well, I do consider it an honor and a privilege to be with you here this evening. And as we begin a week of meetings like this, I wish I would have a glimpse into what you are expecting, what you're hoping for throughout the week. Are, are you excited to be here each evening, or are you more kicking to survival mode and let's just, let's just get through this here? We got school, we got children, we got work, we got all this going on. And so I, I, I don't know what you're expecting, but as Jim shared here this evening, I hope you're coming thirsty. I'm hoping you're coming, hoping to receive from the Lord. And it is my heart's desire that we can receive from the Lord this week. Not because of me, but because of who God is. and Because of Jesus and who He is. And it's my heart's desire that He can, throughout the week, He can flow as that river. He can move and work at will in my heart, in your heart, in each of our hearts together. Like Brother Jim said, my family is here with me. We do have five sons. Our oldest, Kyron, is 13 years old, Reagan is 12, Judson is 10, Isaac is 7, and Nigel is 5. And uh, so we're, we're blessed with a, a hyper, hyper, that's not the right word, an active home, lots of energy, and um, we, we do have many blessings that go along with having a single gender family. And uh, so we, we are blessed with what God has given us. Brother Jim told me, he gave me an assignment this week, he said, we hope by the time the week is over that you'll have figured out and explained coronavirus to you all, to everybody. That was my assignment this evening, so I decided to take him up on that, and uh, we're, going to th- we're going to think about, we're going to see if we can't nail down some facts this evening, although they have nothing to do with coronavirus. Well, we are going to look at facts. I don't know if, if you have thought about it throughout this, this whole time of coronavirus and maybe even the political scene and everything. It is so hard to get your hands on some good, solid, agreed-upon facts. Everybody disagrees, everybody differs, and and it's hard to know what actually is the truth, what are facts. And so while we're not going to be thinking about anything with the coronavirus and, and all that type of stuff, but we are going to be looking at some facts this evening. But before we get there, we need to, uh, we need to go on a, a, a journey in looking at the first king of Israel. And the title of the message for this evening is, Are You Little in Your Own Eyes? The first king of Israel, and we all know the story. We're going to go quickly through the, uh, the beginning of the first king of Israel from 1 Samuel chapter 8, working through chapter 15. Don't need to worry. We're not going to read all the verses. But we're going to highlight through a bunch of different occasions with Saul and Samuel, and as Saul is put in as the first king of Israel. So you can join me in 1 Samuel chapter 8, as we get an introduction here to where we find the children of Israel at this time. 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8, we have Samuel, he's a judge, and he's getting old. And he is passing on the torch to his children. He has two sons that he's passing on his torch to of judging. Unfortunately, his sons are not being good judges as Samuel was. And it says in, um, in verse 3, it says that they turned aside after lucre, after money. They took bribes and they perverted judgment. So there's a problem here. Samuel was old. He was passing on the torch to his, his sons, but they were not following true judgment. And so the people come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. Just like all the other nations, we're tired of being different. We're tired of being ruled by judges. We want a king like all the other nations. And this troubled Samuel. And he goes before the Lord in prayer. And notice what the Lord says to Samuel in verse 7. 
He says, To hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee. Now think about what was going on here with Samuel. He had been a judge of the nation for a long time. He had, he had judged the people who had ruled them. And now they're saying, we no longer want you. We no longer want the system that you have upheld of judges. We want a king. So naturally, Samuel was feeling rejection. But God said, no. He said, they're not rejecting you as a judge. They are rejecting me. The people are rejecting me. God is saying that they're rejecting me, that I should reign over them. And he tells Samuel to go ahead and do what they're asking him to do. Then we come to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and we have Saul introduced to us. The one that is going to be chosen to be king, and it gives his family lineage. And notice in verse 2, it says, Kish, which was Saul's father, he had a son whose name was Saul. And it says he was a choice young man. And a goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he, for from his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. One of the things that strikes me as Saul is introduced to us is that there is nothing said about character qualities of Saul, only how he looked. Only his physical appearances are given to us. But this was what the Israelites desired. They wanted a king to look like all the other nations. So I don't know if the other nations had these, these handsome, stout kings that just were easily recognizable, that they were royalty. And that's what they envisioned as a nation of Israel. They wanted a handsome, stout king that was easily recognizable as their king. But this is who Saul is, and he's introduced to us as a goodly, he's handsome, he's tall, and he stands out among the people. As we move on through the story... Saul goes on a journey looking for his father's donkeys. And throughout that journey, he has a servant with him. He, they meet up with Samuel. They're looking for the donkeys. They can't find them. They're ready to turn back. And Saul's servant that is with him says, there's a, there's, a, there's a seer, there's a prophet in this town. Let's go see if he can help us in finding the donkeys. So they go to Samuel. Saul and his servant, they go to Samuel. And they talk. They meet with Samuel. And Samuel has him stay the night. And he gives them instructions. And he gives some words to Saul the next morning, which are very interesting to me. If I can lay my eyes on right now. Verse 21 of chapter 9. Actually, back up to verse 20. So Samuel and Saul, they meet up. Samuel tells Saul, he says, Don't worry about the asses. As for the asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. Then Samuel says to Saul, and he says, And on whom is the desire of all Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? I would love to know why Samuel said that to Saul. Why did he ask him the question, On whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and all thy, thy father's house? And, Samuel, and, and Saul has a reply right away. He has an answer for Samuel. And he says, And Samuel answered and said, Am I not a Benjaminite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, wherefore then speakest thou so to me? It's like Samuel, it's like Saul had this, this, this recording rehearsed in his mind, all ready for Samuel, of how he was going to respond to this question. So in my mind, I get this imagination that as Saul moved around, as he went among the people, as he went about his business, Israel was desiring a king. They wanted a king. And here comes Saul doing about his normal business, and there was whispers behind his back. Now, if we could have a king, it'd be that young man right there. 
if, if we could have a king, we would want Saul. I don't think Saul was, was, was blindsided by this. I don't think this was a total new idea to him. I wonder if he hadn't heard the whispers and he wasn't suspicious of what was going on in the people's minds. And when Samuel said that to him, he had a rehearsed answer. He's like, I am nothing. I am the least of the least of the least of Israel. I am nothing. But Samuel has him stay the night. And, and in the morning, he talks with him in verse 27. As they're leaving the city, Samuel tells Saul to send his servant on ahead. In verse 27, he sends his servant on ahead. And then in verse, 20, in verse 1 of chapter 10, Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon Saul's head. And he kissed him. And he said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? And he anoints Saul with oil to be the king of Israel. And then Saul goes on his way home. But before he leaves her, Samuel tells him, he prophesies for him a series of events of things that are going to happen. And I don't know if this was Samuel saying, This is to prove to you of what God is going to do of how you are chosen to be king. This is not just a happen, happening at a chance meeting, but you are going to be king, and God is going to show you by some series of events that Samuel prophesied, and all those, those events came true. But Saul goes back to his home, and he comes back to, to his home, and he meets up with his uncle in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 14, 15, and 16. He meets up with his uncle when he gets back home again. And I want you to notice... What happens here is interaction with Saul's uncle as he gets back in verse 14. Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, Whither went ye? And he said, To seek the asses. And when we saw they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said to him, Tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto you. Why did his uncle ask him that? Why did his uncle say, Tell me, what did Samuel say to you? Was he really interested in what Samuel had told him about the donkeys? Or was he really interested in just what the conversation was? Again, my mind is suspicious. Saul's uncle heard the also conversations that were going on about his nephew and how his nephew would make a wonderful king. Here he meets up with Samuel, the current prophet, the current judge. And he says, well, what did he really tell you? What's in store for Israel? Look at what, Samuel, what Saul says. Verse 16. And Saul said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the asses were found, but of the matter of the kingdom he told him not. He withheld that information from him. Didn't say anything about the kingdom or what Saul had done in anointing him. I don't know why, Samuel, why Saul didn't, I'm sorry, why Samuel anointing Saul. I don't know why Saul didn't say anything, why he didn't mention it to his uncle. I think we see later on as we come down in the story, I don't think Saul really, really wanted the position. It wasn't something that he desired. But we go on here, we come to chapter 10, towards the, uh, towards the end of chapter 10, or the middle part of chapter 10. Samuel calls all the people together in verse 17, and they have the formal choosing of the king of Israel. They have the formal choosing through the lot process. They narrow it down, and they narrow it down to Saul, but he's nowhere among the people. And we know the story that he is out hiding. He's nowhere among the people. They ask God. They say, where is he? And God says, he's hiding among the stuff. And so they go, and they find him, and they bring him out, and they set him before the people. And again, in verse 23, it says, as he ran, and they fetched him thence. When he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the other people from his shoulders and upward. 
And Samuel, verse 24, said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted and said, God save the king. They have a king. They're excited about it. Verse 26, And Saul went home, and all the people. Samuel wrote down some instructions. He laid it in a book. He put it in a book, laid it before the Lord, and everybody went home. Saul had just been anointed. He had just been called to be king before everybody. Everybody knew that Saul was to be the king, but they all go back to their homes. But in verse 27, as we so often have in any kingdom or any any government, there were some dissenters. Verse 27, it says, But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And that he despised him and brought no presents, but he held his peace. So things aren't all smooth as Saul is starting out. It's quiet about Saul and the kingdom. Then we come to chapter 11. And Nahash, we have this story here of Nahash, an Ammonite. He comes up against Jabesh Gilead. The men of Jabesh Gilead, there's a squabble of some territory. And he comes up against Jabesh Gilead, the men there, and he wants to fight them. And the men say, no, we're not interested in fighting. And they ask for terms of surrender. Now, Nahash was a cruel man. And he said, here are my terms of surrender. If you're going to surrender to me, here are the terms. I want all your men to come out. There's an edge there. (laughs) Just making sure I'm awake. I see what you're doing. (laughs) I want all your men to come out, and we'll gouge out your right eye. And he goes on as far as to say, so that it will be a reproach unto Israel. Now, if you think about it, what that would have done to the men of Jabesh Gilead to have their right eye gouged out. They'd have been powerless. They'd have been weak. They wouldn't be able to fight in battle. Two eyes work together for perception and depth and being able to fight. It'd have been a disgrace to their, to their, to their area, to their community, to their town. And they, they say, whoa, that's, that's pretty steep, Nahash. That's pretty high terms. Give us seven days to think about it. Give us seven days to send out letters asking if anybody will support us, anybody will come and help us. And they do. They send out letters and the letters come to, to Gilead, I think it is, where, where, where Saul is. They come to Gibeah, to Saul's home. And they come to Saul's home, and the people are wailing in their mourning. And Saul, the king of Israel, who has been declared king, he's out plowing, he's out working in his field. He comes home, and he says, why are the people weeping and wailing? And they explain what's going on. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And he sends out word through all the people, and he rallies a 330,000-man army. And they send word to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and they say, help is on the way, we are coming. And they come and they destroy the Ammonites and have a wonderful victory. Then, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 12 and 15, we have a very interesting dialogue between the people and Samuel and Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 12 and 15, this is after the battle... The people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Remember those dissenters back at the end of chapter 10, I believe it was, that said, Who is Saul that can reign over us, that shall deliver us? They said, Who are those people now? We have just had a wonderful victory. Where are those men? Let's put them to death. They said that to Samuel. But look who replies. Saul said, in verse 13, There shall not a man be put to death this day. 
For today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. That tells me of a heart position that Saul had. He was not looking for the praise. He was not looking for the honor. He was not looking for the glory of this battle. But he deflected it to God. He said this was a victory that God has won through us today. Nobody is going to be punished for earlier choices or earlier discussions. Then we come to chapter 13. We have some trouble in the kingdom. There's a skirmish between the Philistines and the Israelites, and they defeat a small garrison of the Philistines. And in so doing, they awaken the full force of the force of the Philistines. And the Philistines come out to do battle against the Israelites. And they set up a camp, they set up war to do war against them. Huge army. And the people of Israel are scared. And as Saul tries to rally his army, they're melting away, they're hiding in the thickets and the caves, and his army is dwindling. And there had been a time set of seven days. And Samuel was going to come and sacrifice and seek and petition the help of God. But Samuel was slow in coming. He didn't come on day one. He didn't come on day two. He didn't come on day three. And every day Saul saw his army dwindling as they were melting away into the thickets and into the caves and hiding as they were scared. He didn't come on day four. Maybe he got stuck in the traffic around Ephrata in 322 and 222. I don't, I don't know what happened, but he didn't come, didn't come. And Saul said, we have to petition the Lord. We have to sacrifice. And so he goes ahead and he offers that burnt offering on his, on his own. An unlawful act that was for the prophet, that was for Samuel only. But he goes ahead and he does that. Because he wants to petition God's help in fighting the Philistines. And naturally, as soon as he does that, Samuel shows up. He says, what have you done? And Saul explains to him, I was waiting and the people were melting away. And, and, and we need to seek God's help in the, bird, in the burnt offering. Verse 12, he says there at the end, he says, I have not made supplication unto the Lord, and I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering. I don't know what, Samuel, what Saul was trying to tell Samuel, that he forced himself as if he had no choice, as if it was against his own will. But he forced himself to go forth and to, to go forward in sacrificing the offering. But I look at that as something seems to be changing within Saul, as he is willing to move ahead without Samuel in sacrificing to the Lord. As we move ahead in chapter 14, Samuel, Saul has victory and he's, he's fighting different battles. He's going up against Moab. He's He's against the children of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistine. And whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed him. He was having victory in battle. And he gathered a host and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. But then we come to chapter 15, a very familiar chapter that we have. We come to chapter 15 and verse 1. Samuel comes to Saul. And notice how he starts out his orders of what he is to do. All this time, I believe, in between chapter 14 and 15, there's a lot of years when I don't know how long a time or space there is between there, but it seems like Saul had been left to go at his own of his military endeavors. He was kind of left at his own discretion, but now Samuel comes to Saul with very explicit instructions in verse 15. Samuel said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Why did Samuel need to preface his instructions to Saul with reminding him that God was the one that put him where he is? Why did he have to remind him that the Lord had chosen him to be king? Now you need to listen 
to the voice of the Lord. I don't know exactly, but I think we have a clue as we follow through on the story here that there was a change that had taken place in Saul's heart. And we know the story. God told Israel to go out and to utterly destroy the Malachites. They were to wipe them out for what they had done to them. It was, it was God's plan to totally destroy them. Nothing was to be spared. They go out and they do battle, but they don't follow God's instructions. It starts out with, with Saul keeping King Agag alive and bringing him back. And the people keeping the choices animals, and they come back. And then Samuel comes and he meets up with Saul. And I find it interesting that when Samuel meets up with Saul, in verse 13, Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou, blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Here's something to note. If you have to tell somebody that you're being obedient to God's word, there's a problem. It should be obvious. But he had to tell Saul, Samuel, I have been obedient to God's word. I have done what the Lord has told me. And we know the dialogue, we know the conversation of what takes place there between Saul and Samuel. And as we come down to verse 17 is where we get the title of the message this evening. Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, was it not was not thou made was thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed thee to be king over Israel when thou wast little in thine own eyes is when God made you king but something changed look at verse 30 of chapter 15 here after Samuel and Saul dialogue and Samuel explains Samuel explains very clearly to Saul that God desires obedience and not sacrifice very clearly lays that out and they have this discussion then verse 30 Saul says, I have sinned. He acknowledges that he has sinned, but look at what he says right next. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the people. In five chapters, we go from Saul not wanting to be king, being little in his own sight, hiding in the stuff, not wanting to tell his uncle about what Samuel has said to him. We go from him not even wanting the kingdom. In five chapters, we go to him all that matters is Samuel, come with me and honor me before the people. That's all that matters. I know I've sinned. I know I've done wrong. But just come with me now and honor me before the people. I am the king and I want to save face. Just cover it up and let's move on, Samuel. Don't make a big deal of it. That's where Saul is at now. That's all that mattered. He was no longer little in his own sight, but he was king. And all that he desired was that Samuel honors him before the people. Verse 31 says, And Samuel turned after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Verse 35, the ending of the chapter, it says, And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Chapter 16, verse 1, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, and I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king from among his sons. And if we think, in our, if we think forward in our minds as Samuel went to, this, to Jesse, and all Jesse's sons paraded before Samuel, what did God tell Samuel? It's not what's on the outside that I'm looking at. It's what's in the heart. And Samuel was being taught a lesson by God that it's in the heart is what counts. Doesn't matter what's on the outside. God's looking in the heart for the next king. 
So that is a, that's a fast overview that we went through of the first king of Israel. King Saul, his, his rise to power, his fall. And I would suggest to you that when he started out as king, as we talked about, he didn't really desire it. It wasn't something he was looking for. But as time went on, that kingdom took a grip of his heart. And there was a change in his heart. I believe pride welled up within him. His ego started to, take, to grow larger and take control of him and brought him down. The three facts, there's three facts that we want to look at this evening about pride. We can be hard on Saul and we can say, Saul, how could you do that? How could you allow the kingdom to grab your heart? How could you allow that power to corrupt you? But before we're too hard on Saul, I call you to look inwardly in your own heart. Inwardly in our own heart, because I believe that pride is something that we all struggle with. Pride is something that I struggle with, that I wrestle with. And so as we go through these three facts about pride this evening, I hope that you are convinced, as I am, that pride in a Christian's life must be rooted out, must be taken care of, must be gotten out. The first fact that we want to look at, look at it in pride, there's a definition, but we're gonna, we want to move on. The first fact that we want to look at in pride is that pride is sneaky. Excuse my elementary word there, that pride is sneaky. But if we look at Saul's life, from where he started out, from where he began, of a place of a position of lowliness and humility. And then we see that change in chapter 13 where he says, I forced myself to do the burnt offering, to do the unlawful sacrifice. Doesn't really own up to the ownership of own up to the, the wrong that he had done, but I forced myself to where we find him in the ending of chapter 15, where all he cares about is that he is honored before the people. Pride is sneaky. It creeps up in us. Oftentimes, it creeps in in our thought life at at the most inopportune, the weirdest times. Maybe you've had it happening already that you, you want to do an act of service. You want to do something to bless somebody else. Maybe it's a a winter day and, and you're out shoveling your snow and you're like, hey, you know what? My neighbor needs to have his snow shoveled as well. So I'm going to go over and shovel my neighbor's snow, snow his, his driveway, his sidewalks, whatever it is. And while you're out there shoveling the snow, that thought pops into your head. I hope Pastor Leon drives by, sees me out here shoveling the snow for my neighbor. I hope Brother Jim sees what a great servant I am in the church. Am I, am I the only one that's weird in that way? And when you're doing something, trying to be a servant, trying to be humility, uh, serving in humility, pride creeps up. One of the things I think about that that just very clearly gripped my heart and how sneaky pride is was several years ago, the first year that my son Kyron participated in the Maxa Bible quizzing, my wife spent and still spends a boatload of hours in helping my sons get ready for Bible quizzing and, and listening to them prepare, listening to them rehearse. And this was the first year, so Kyron was the only one that participated. She put lots of hours, lots of energy into them practicing, into him, into him practicing, and him rehearsing, reciting his Bible memory for quizzing. They go to the first quiz meet there at Lambs on, on a Saturday afternoon, and their team was doing well. They were, they were doing well. They were winning quizzes. They were, they were placing. They were moving up through. And, and as the day wore on, I started to say, wow. Kyron's pretty good at this. He's doing well. And I enjoyed it when somebody came by. I was like, hey, your, your son's doing well in that quiz in there. And, and I'd be like, yeah, it's his first year, you know. <laughs> just, just saying, you know. And, and it just gripped my heart. I had nothing to do 
with his success, I hardly listened to him quote, I hardly did anything other than sometimes be the enforcer when he needed the extra motivation to keep on going. I had nothing to do with that. But as I saw his success and I was his father, I thought I had some right to feel good about it. That's how pride is. It's sneaky. It wells up within us. It it grows up in the most inopportune times and tries to take over and tries to take root within our hearts. We must be on guard against the sneakiness of pride. It's a fact that pride is sneaky. Another fact about pride is that pride is separating. Remember the definition that we had said, that I, well, I didn't really go over it, but I showed you earlier, the definition was up here, that pride is an inordinate self-esteem. Inordinate self-esteem, which manifests itself in lofty airs and distance. Pride is separating. It polarizes. It separates. It has a polarizing effect of pushing others away because they're simply not good enough. I'm better than they are. They don't measure up to who I am. I just leave them aside. We see the separation in Saul, in our, in our story of Saul, that's the first king of Israel. There in chapter 15, verse 35, when after that took place there, it says that Samuel came, not to see, came, to, came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Separation. I, I would imagine that as Saul started out as king, as he was put there in place as king, you know, Samuel had leadership experience. He was used to working with the people. He was used to guiding the people, settling issues, you know, giving, giving leadership to the people. I would imagine that as Saul started out as king, Samuel was right there beside him, coaching him, mentoring him. This is how you do it. This is how you work through this situation. Here's, a, here's how you want to work through this. Here's how you do this. And their relationship, I believe, was tight. I'm reading between the lines here. But then as time went on, and Saul started to get his feet under him, and he started to feel that he could do it on his own, started to feel that he could handle it, he probably started to marginalize and push Saul aside, Samuel aside, started to push him out of the, you know, I can take care of this. I can figure this out on my own. And I believe that's as that grew and as that distance grew, because of, the fi- because of the fact that pride separates, as that pride welled up within Saul, he pushed Samuel aside. And that relationship was separated to the culmination where Samuel came no more to see Saul till his death. That's what pride will do to a relationship. That's what pride will do to friendships, is it separates, it pushes aside, it polarizes. I'm sure you've seen it happen in, in friendships, in relationships, in co-workers, whatever it may be, where there's a tight relationship and then something goes wrong, something comes up, and those positions are taken, and there's, there's not a willingness to bow, there's not a willingness to submit, there's not a willingness to come together, and the relationships separate. And reunion doesn't happen until there's one on the deathbed or one is near death. That's pride. It separates. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, first part of the, first part of the verse says, Only by pride cometh contention. You have a relationship, you have something that is fraught with tension, something that has conflict in it, there's pride there. There's pride there that is pushing and that is trying to destroy that relationship because pride is separating. It puts distance between. It, puts, it separates people from each other. But not only does pride separate 
from relationships, from our earthly relationships, from friendships, from parents, from family, from whoever it may be. But pride also separates us from God. This is very sobering and very serious, this verse in James chapter 4, verse 6, that we're very familiar with. Verse 6, it says in James chapter 4, but he says, it giveth, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. The ESV says, but he giveth more grace, therefore God opposes the proud. That's a strong word. God opposes the proud. Remember I said that as we go throughout this evening about these facts about pride, that I hope you're convinced that we must get rid of pride out of our lives. God opposes the proud. And if you look at the meaning behind that word of God resisteth or God opposes, it literally means that God sets himself in array against. In other words, God draws up battle lines against the proud. Now, there is not much more separation than two armies that are warring against each other. But God opposes. God sets himself in array against the proud. And here's why. Think about it. God is God, is God and he has, his enemy, he has the enemy of Satan. Where did that conflict begin? That conflict began when Satan was in, before Satan was fallen out of heaven, pride welled up within Satan and he rebelled against God and he was kicked out of heaven. So now we have Satan, we have God. They're arch enemies, they're enemies, they're against each other. Pride was the initial conflict of what separated God from Satan. So when we choose pride, when we allow pride to grow in our lives, when we allow pride to take root in our hearts, in our lives, we are choosing the side of Satan. We are choosing to join forces with Satan, which automatically puts us against God. That is sobering. That is why we must get rid of pride out of our lives. That's why we must renounce it. We must remove it from our lives because none of us wants to have God in opposition of us. We don't want to be on Satan's side fighting against God. We want God to have grace. We want the grace of God. He gives more grace to the humble. Pride separates. God opposes the proud. Pride is sneaky. It's separating and the clincher is that ultimately pride is sin. And this is where we got to come to this evening as we think about the reality of the facts of pride. Pride is sin, a high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. A high look, a proud heart is sin. Something that God hates. Verse 16 of Proverbs chapter 6 These six things does the Lord hate. That's a strong word. These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. The first one, top of the list, what God hates is a proud look. A proud look. Pride is sin. What we have to come to grips with is as Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 20 through 23, Jesus said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. By default, we are born with a sin nature. We're born with a sin nature and that seed 
of pride is within us. That seed of pride is within us and desires to grow and desires to come out, desires to manifest itself as it did in Saul, separate us from God, separate us from people. It desires to grow within us and take over our hearts. Ultimately, it desires to destroy us. Real quickly here as we come to a close, how do we overcome pride? We reference James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Turn with me there real quick, James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, as we come to a close here this evening. How do we overcome pride? James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Draw nigh to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Humble yourselves. Overcoming pride doesn't need to be held underwater, as Jim said earlier, but overcoming pride is through drawing nigh to God, resisting the devil, and humbling ourselves in the sight of God. But be aware, because verse 10 there says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And what's he going to do? He's going to lift you up. God will glorify, God will lift up those that are humble, those that he can work through. And then right as God lifts you up, and as you, as you humble yourselves, you're drawing eye to God, and God starts to lift you up, what's right there? Wow, look at you. You're a good Christian. God is lifting you up. You're a humble person. And pride is right there, seeking to come into our lives. Demetrius will probably recognize those gates at the back of our parking lot there at Landis Technologies. The dumpster is behind those gates. Every Monday morning, the dumpster truck comes in, and he opens the gates, and he goes in with his truck, and he empties out the dumpster, and he leaves. He forgets a very critical part of closing the gates. I guess it's not in his job description. So when you come in on Monday morning, if you're one of the first ones there, these gates are, these doors are hanging open, and they're in the way for the parking of the cars, and this looks unsightly. The dumpster's there. One morning in particular, I remember coming into work, Monday morning, if I remember correctly, it was a rainy Monday morning, the gates were standing open. So I was meditating, I was pondering about this whole idea of pride and humbleness, and I thought, you know what, I can close the gates. So I hop out as my vehicle, as I head in through, I quick close the gates, and it was such a stark thing, as I turned around after closing the gates, I right away noticed whose cars were in the parking lot. I know the dumpster truck goes earlier in the morning. And that thought was right there. Well, why didn't they close the gates? Pride is sneaky. It comes in. And it wants to separate. It wants to say, you're better than them. You're better than them. But ultimately, it is sin. And that's where we have to come back to in realizing that pride is sin. And we must root it out of our lives. We must humble ourselves in the sight of God. And as we think about where we're at here at the beginning of the week, of a week of meetings, and as we're looking at, at looking and desiring for God to move, to draw us closer to Him, nothing will stop that from happening more than pride. As we stand in opposition, as we don't allow God to move. 
So as we go throughout the week this, this week, and as, as, as the word is shared, don't allow pride to stop God from moving and working in your heart as he desires. Don't allow God to, don't allow pride to, to draw up resistance of hearing what God has for you. But allow God to move and work. Allow God to plow deeply upon your heart this week. And don't allow pride to, to be in the way. Because it's sneaky. And it is separating. And it is sin. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you at the close of this service. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn from King Saul. And Father, we pray as we begin this week here, we pray, God, that you would look deeply into our hearts and that you would show us if there is a level of pride, if there is pride that is welled up there, that is going to be a problem throughout the week. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to overcome it, to humble ourselves, to draw an eye to you and to seek your face. I pray your blessing upon each one here this, this week. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would move and work among us and that you would flow like a river throughout the week in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.